Well, good morning, and uh, glad to be with you again, and thank you to your elders, Matt and Ray and uh, Tom, for the invitation. I do bring greetings from our own congregation to yours. Um, I'm a ruling elder at Fresno Reformed Presbyterian Church, not too far down the road on Belmont and Maple, and uh, we're glad that we are with you together uh, in the ministry, and, and we look forward to the, the joint service we have uh, coming up in October, uh, where we can worship with you. That's uh, a joy. But our congregation prays for you often, especially now uh, that God would bring uh, a man to be your pastor and fill your pulpit soon. Uh, we had an empty pulpit ourselves for a while, and, and it is a hard thing, but uh, God will see you through, and so that's our prayer for you. Uh, but I would encourage you uh, to turn in your Bibles with me uh, to the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm 5 this morning. And uh, as you turn there, I'll just point to that there is a, a, a simple outline in your bulletin, if, if that's helpful to you, to follow along. But uh, let us now turn to God's Word, uh, reading Psalm 5, all 12 verses in its entirety. Again, this is Psalm 5, the very Word of God. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Please pray with me briefly. Our Father in heaven, as we consider these words this morning, as we consider this psalm, Lord, we pray that uh, you would work in our hearts, Lord, that you would use your word through your spirit uh, to convict us where conviction is needed, to encourage us where encouragement is needed, and ultimately to point us to Christ, Lord. Lord, I pray you'd be with me as I seek to uh, speak uh, for your glory and, and for your truth, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many years ago when I was in college, I was in a choir uh, and one of the neat things we got to do as a choir is we got to travel to the British Isles and do for about uh, three weeks a, a tour of, of that area and, and singing as we went. And we visited uh, Scotland and, and uh, England and, and then Ireland. 
And uh, when we were in Ireland, we visited a place called the Cliffs of Moher. That's M-O-H-E-R. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, though I don't know. They don't know how to pronounce things over there anyways. But uh, the Cliffs of Moher were uh, these cliffs on the west side of Ireland, uh, right on the Atlantic Ocean. And they're very, you know, extensive. They go a long ways, about nine miles. And they, you know, different parts, they're higher and lower. But at certain parts, they're 700 feet above the ocean. Um, and the place where we were at uh, when we got off our tour bus and walked over to these cliffs, it was a kind of a tourist destination and there were lots of people coming. And there was a fence, uh, just a very simple, you know, wooden fence there that you could easily climb over. And then there were several, uh, you know, maybe 20 feet from that fence to the edge of the cliff. And in the middle of that fence was this very large sign that said, uh, caution, don't cross this fence, there's unexpected wind gusts, and you know, it was a very kind of, for me, someone who's scared of heights, I read that sign and I thought I'm going to stay on this side of the fence. But I was amazed at all the people that were crawling over this fence, climbing over this fence to get better views, get closer to the edge, you know, and it was just this weird sight to see a fence, a sign that said don't cross the fence because imminent death is beyond and seeing all these people climb over. Um, but we, we get uh, signs in our life all the time. We see signs, right? Uh, some are commands or apparently suggestions, right? Some are warnings. Some are helpful. Some are not. Uh, maybe you've traveled in an airplane, and when you get on the airplane, you've seen that sign that says, uh, Caution, this plane was made with products that contain chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer, birth defects, or other reproductive harm. I don't know if you've ever seen that sign. I really don't know what to do with that sign when I see it. Uh, but there's all sorts of signs out there. Um, but one sign that is very helpful that you might have seen is one that says, in case of fire, break glass. Right? And you've seen that in a building somewhere. There's a glass case and maybe a fire extinguisher or a fire hose inside. And it says, in case of fire, break the glass. And there's even a hammer hanging there. And you get the idea. When there's a fire, you break this glass and you use what is inside. And it's there. Well, Psalm 5, I think, is an in case of fire, break glass type of psalm. It's uh, telling you when trouble comes, here is what you are to do. When fire comes, here is what you're to do. And so I want us this morning to look at Psalm 5 to consider uh, what it is telling us to do. It was written by David, uh, King David, and uh, you will see as we get into it that he is describing trouble in his own life, and, and we look and see what he did uh, with that, and that instructs us of what we are to do when we experience trouble. And uh, our main point this morning, or what I call our sermon lesson, is as follows. In your trouble, cry out to the prayer-hearing, just, and merciful God. In your trouble, cry out to the prayer-hearing, just, and merciful God. And we'll break that up into three points. First, uh, in your trouble, turn to the prayer-hearing God first. And then the second point, that God hates wickedness and will judge it. And the third point, God is merciful, give thanks forever. So we'll consider each of these points, but let's turn first to this first point. In trouble, turn to the prayer-hearing God first. Well, uh, in this psalm, King David right away makes it clear that he's going through trouble. You can see that in verse 1, 2, and 3 as he 
uh, is praying to God. He's not just simply communicating with God, right? He's groaning. You see that. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Uh, give attention to the sound of my cry, right? There's real trouble going on. David is groaning and crying out to God. He's not simply communicating. And when you think about the life of King David, this shouldn't be a shock to us, right? David's life, he started as sort of an unknown person, the young son of an unknown family out uh, shepherding the sheep. He was so insignificant that when a prophet comes to his father to say, one of your sons is going to be the next king, Father doesn't even bother to bring David in from the, the pasture, right? But uh, time goes on, and, and of course Samuel anoints him sort of secretly as king, and then uh, David finds himself at the front lines of the Israelite army fighting the Philistines, and there's this great giant Goliath mocking God, mocking the enemies of God, and, and David uh, sort of through the Spirit of God uh, stands up and, and fights him and wins and becomes this great uh, sort of hero in the eyes of the Israelites and becomes this military uh, general and leader uh, at one point in, in much favor with King Saul, right, even being given his daughter in marriage. But Saul's favor turns to jealousy, right? And then Saul is chasing David, trying to kill him. David is fleeing and hiding in caves and having to even leave and go live amongst the enemies of God, living uh, as uh, all this thing. So uh, great trouble. King Saul finally dies, King David becomes king, uh, he's still fighting all the enemies of God, a, a life just full of military conflict, things like that. And even later in life, what happens? His own family, his own son, Absalom, uh, seeks to uh, take the throne away, uh, becomes a traitor, chases David out. David has to flee again for his life. And so when you look at the life of David, it's constantly full of trouble. And it's not surprising that he turns to God in his trouble in this psalm. And as I look out in this congregation this morning, uh, I know some of you, I don't know a, a lot of you, uh, and I don't know a lot about each of you, right? I don't know all the things going on in your own life, but I can uh, reasonably assume that you are having trouble in your life. Uh, we face job losses. We face health crises. We face the death of a loved one. Uh, we face the trouble it is to have children that aren't walking with the Lord. Uh, all sorts of things. We struggle with pain. We struggle with anxiety. We struggle with uh, depression. All of these things are, are trouble and we all suffer, and life is hard, and I don't think I need to spend time this morning to convince you of that. You know that yourself. And while some people suffer an incredible amount, and some others uh, don't suffer as much, I think we all suffer, um, and that's the universal experience of all mankind in all time, right? We're all descended from Adam. We're all uh, inherited of his uh, sinful nature. We're all inherited of the curse. We deal with the curse of sin and death in our lives. And so if that suffering, if that trouble is something that we all experience, the question is, what do people do with it? What do they turn to in their trouble? And you can think about what uh, people do, right? There's drugs, there's alcohol, right? There's other things that maybe aren't as obvious, right? The workaholic turns to his work. Uh, the parent tries to live vicariously through their children. All these ways, all these things to sort of deal with the suffering in our life, uh, Everybody does that. Everybody turns to different things. But the question we need to ask this morning is, what does the psalmist here, what does David do? What does he do with his trouble? And if you look at verse 3 in particular, you can see that what David does is he turns to God first. 
Okay, uh, Again, he starts the psalm by calling out to God. That's the clue there. But look at verse 3 in particular. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. What's the first thing David does as he wakes up in the morning? He turns to God. God is the priority of his life. Um, and, and the reason for that, right, David knows why he turns to God first. right? If you were to look back just two psalms to Psalm 3, David says, I laid down, I slept, and I woke again because the Lord sustained my life. David understands that God is the one who protects him. God is the one who sustains him. And so when in trouble, David turns to God first. And I want to ask you this question this morning. When you experience trouble, who do you turn to first? Do you turn to God first or do you turn elsewhere? You look for solutions in other places, and maybe God is fifth on the list. You deal with all these other things. Try to solve it yourself before you come to God. Uh, children, maybe you know what a marionette is. A marionette is like a puppet with the strings to their hands and feet, and you, know, you can kind of control it from the top. And if you ever played with a marionette or ever played with a toy that has all the strings like that, you know what can happen, right? The strings can get all tangled up and twisted and, and into knots. And if that's happened to you, have you ever tried to untangle that toy, untangle those strings? Uh, what you do after you do that for minutes and minutes and minutes is you realize the tangles have gotten worse, the knots have gotten tighter. And finally, you take it to your parent and you say, Mom or Dad, can you get this uh, dealt with? You know, I can't get these untangled. And your parent probably has looked at you and said, I wish you would come to me first. I wish you hadn't taken those 30 minutes to make this way worse than it was. Uh, it's harder now. The knots are tighter. The tangles are worse, right? And so in the same way, we're called to go to God first with our trouble, right? When we go to other things, when we look for other solutions, things become worse, things become more trouble, and we're called to come to God first. Uh, the, the other thing under this point that I want you to think about is a fact that we come to a prayer hearing God, right? It's very clear in the first few passages that David is calling out to God, praying to him. Um, but the question is, is, does God respond, right? Is David calling out to God just like the prophets of Baal ran around cutting themselves, crying out to this God made of, uh, you know, a man-made God? Or is there something more? Does, does David call out to a God that hears him and answers and, of course, the question is answered in this psalm. You can see that in particular at the last verse, verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And so not only do we see David calling out to God, but we see God answering, God listening to the cries of David and God answering that uh, cry. And I want you just to stop and, and think about that for a second. Think about this, the fact that you cry out, you pray, to a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. You know, this God who created all things, right? Who uh, every molecule in the entire universe is under his control. He's created all things. Nothing exists apart from him. That same God is the God who hears you when you pray. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Uh, he, he cares for you and loves you in, in ways you cannot understand. And think, too, about this. Think about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He came into this world. He took on our flesh. 
he had troubles, he suffered, he had anxieties, he had all those things that we deal with. And what did Jesus do? He turned to his Father in heaven in prayer. He spent hours upon hours praying to his Father in heaven, praying to God. And it's an example for us, but I think it's even a more powerful thing to say that same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we pray to him, there's a sense that when Christ was here on earth, he prayed to God, right? And, and he knows us and he understands us. And think, too, as he died and suffered on the cross and rose again and now sits at the right hand of God, what is Jesus doing today? He's praying for you and for me. So don't uh, skip over that amazing thing. Don't, uh, you know, lose sight of just how amazing reality it is that we pray to a God who hears us. We pray to a God who answers. The last thing I want you to think about under this point is uh, while Psalm 5 is very focused on when in trouble turn to God, I think when you think more broadly about biblical teaching, I think we could say we're to turn to God in all times, in all circumstances, right? Uh, My brother-in-law Ryan and I uh, recently coached a first and second grade basketball team. And Ryan was the head coach, and I was the assistant coach, and we don't need to talk anymore about that. But we were a very good team, but uh, my brother-in-law, Ryan, played basketball in college, very talented, um, and, you know, that was decades ago now, and, and then years later, uh, my son and his daughter on this team, and, and we decided to coach this first, first and second grade team. And I think that was Ryan's sort of first official interaction with basketball, right? So he went from playing college basketball to coaching first and second graders. And it's, it's quite a transition. But we were a good team. And, but I remember one practice in particular where Ryan gathered all the kids together in the middle of the court. And, and he said, kids, I want to talk to you about muscle memory. And he went on this long speech about, you know, right now when you're dribbling, you've got so much to think about. And it's hard. And when you're passing, you know, it's hard. And when you're shooting, you know, we're telling you to shoot with a particular form. And you're thinking about it so much and it's so hard. And he was saying, if you just keep practicing and doing this again and again and again, Pretty soon you'll develop muscle memory and you can dribble without thinking about it and you can pass and you can shoot and it'll all just be natural and you'll develop these great habitual muscle memory things. And I don't think the kids understood a word of it, but the point was good and I think the point is good here, right? In our good times, who do you turn to first? Are you making God a priority in your life? Are you going to worship God on a weekly basis? Are you fellowshipping with the people of God? Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you doing all those things that show that God is the most important thing in your life? And if you are and you develop those habits, then when trouble does come, it will be that much easier to turn to God in your trouble. If you're not in the habit, if you're not used to turning to God at all times, you may not turn to him in your trouble. So uh, remember that. That's our our first point. Turn to the prayer-hearing God in our trouble and at all times and turn to him first. Uh, The second point we can cover this morning is that God hates wickedness and will judge it. If you look back to the psalm, Psalm 5, and think about the structure of this psalm, you know, the first three verses, again, is sort of the introduction. David's crying out to God in his trouble. But look at verse 4 through the end of the psalm. There's a real back and forth happening here, right? Verses 4 through 6 is is a focus on the wicked man. And then verses 7 and 8 is sort of focus on David. And then we go back, verses 9 and 10, again to the wicked. 
and then verses 11 and 12 back to sort of David and the people of God. So there's this kind of comparison uh, contrasting the, the, the wicked man and the people of God and back and forth like that. Um, and, and that's similar. A lot of Psalms do that. You can think of Psalm 1 maybe comes to mind of, of sort of comparing the, the righteous man and the wicked man, those type of things. And so with this structure, with this kind of comparison, we want to take some time to look at these words, look at these passages that talk about the wickedness of man and what God thinks of it. And so look at verse 4 through 6 in particular and notice sort of the verbs that are used here. God takes no delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with God. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. God hates all evildoers. God destroys those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Do you see sort of how those verbs sort of crescendo, right? Uh, They begin with no delight, not dwelling, shall not stand, hate, destroy, abhor. It's sort of this growing sense of how clear it is that God hates wickedness, that God cannot abide sin, that our holy and righteous and just God uh, must deal with sin, must judge sin. It's a problem that has to be dealt with. And if you jump then to verse 9 and 10, which continues looking at the evil man, notice how thoroughly it describes it, right? There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Right? All of that discussion isn't about their evil actions. It's about their evil thoughts, right? their innermost self, and about their evil words, uh, their tongue, their throat, their mouth, all these ways to describe that. And so then in verse 10, as he's finished describing the evil man, the wickedness of humanity, look what he says in verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Right? A very clear call to say humanity is wicked, the the world is wicked, the evil man is wicked, and God, deal with them, judge them. Uh, Do that, Lord. You can think there's a, a parallel here if you wanted to look maybe later. I won't read it right now, but if you turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1 of Romans, there's a very similar description of sort of the full orb description of how evil mankind is and how God uh, must deal with that. Uh, in Romans 2, it says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. They will not escape the judgment of God. So like Romans 2 and 1, Psalm 5 is walking you through saying, here is what man is, here is what wicked man is, here's what he does, this is what God thinks about it, and God will judge the wicked man. And, you know, I think as Western Christians, as American Christians, sometimes we can come across a passage like this, and it kind of makes us feel a little awkward. You know, we, we struggle to read this, it doesn't sound very gracious, What do we do with it? Uh, But there's lots of passages like this in the Bible, and I think we should learn from that. We should learn that evil, wickedness, sin, those things are a big problem. And, and we shouldn't sugarcoat it. You know, we can, we can tend to sort of sugarcoat our sin, sugarcoat sin in the world. Uh, it's not as bad as we think. Um, I, I remember learning, uh, you know, World War I, right, was this great conflict and so many people died. But as World War I ended 
as, uh, as that came to an end, there was sort of this hope that came. A lot of people began to think this way in our country and elsewhere, thinking, hey, we finally figured this out. There's not going to be any more conflict. We've left behind the centuries of war and strife and conflict, and we've sort of entered this new day, right? And the concepts of like the League of Nations and all those things are popular because there was this idea. We figured it out. We're not going to fight. We're coming to this time of international global peace and prosperity. Well, how long was it before we entered into World War II, right? And all those hopes, all that thinking was dashed, and uh, the rose-colored glasses were taken off. And so I think, again, as American Christians, we are shielded from a lot of the wickedness and evil and injustice that happens in the world. Uh, We can kind of live our lives uh, sort of, in one sense, in a bubble, and, and we tend to make little of sin. We tend to make little of all the wrong things going on in the world. And this psalm is just a wake-up call, a reminder to us uh, that things are not right. Things are not good. There's great injustice in the world, and it must be dealt with. Uh, the other thing I think we can learn from these uh, tough language that we see in Psalm 5 is what to do about it. Right? As we look out into the world, as we see the injustice happening, as we see all the strife and the turmoil going on, what are we to do about it? You know, uh, someone who doesn't believe in God, someone who doesn't have this idea of a just, holy, righteous God, they look at that and they can't sleep at night. They're, they're anxious about it. They, they need to deal with it. They need to figure out how to bring justice now in this world now. And it, it tears them up. It ruins them. It, it burns them out, right? But we as Christians, as those who understand that there is a God who is righteous and just and holy and will deal with the wickedness of this world, we can rest in that, knowing that God will take care of it. There is cosmic justice. There is a time when all things will be made right, and we can rest in that. We can ask God to do that. That's what your kingdom come, your will be done. That's wrapped up in that idea, right? We're asking God to judge the wicked. We're asking him to make all things right, and we can rest in that. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, right? So those are just a few things I think we can learn uh, from this language. It's, it's tough sometimes to hear all this description of sin and, and the wickedness and evilness of man. But it's good to remember that even as great as sin and wickedness and evil are, God's justice is greater and God will uh, deal with these things. Well, let's turn to our third point then, which is this, that God is merciful, give thanks forever. And I've mentioned already kind of the structure of the psalm, right? It it talks on the wickedness and evil of mankind and then switches back uh, to David and the people of God and then back to the wickedness of the enemies of God and then back to the people of God. And it's kind of this juxtaposition, kind of a back and forth. And what's really interesting to me, and I I hope you kind of catch it, is if you were to read verses 1 through 6 of this psalm, if you were just to kind of read it and not know what was coming in verse 7, You kind of read it, there's this cry out to God, a description of how evil mankind is. And then you come to verse 7, and what are the first two words in verse 7? But I. And if you didn't know what came after that, what would you think would be said after that? You've just described how evil the enemies of God are, how evil the enemies of David are. And you could almost imagine that David would say something like, but I am not evil, but I am not wicked, but I do not do these horrible things that my enemies do, right? But is that what we see? Is that what we see in verse 7, or do we see something different? Look at verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. 
What makes David different from his enemies? What makes David different than the enemies of God? It's not that David is inherently righteous. It's not that David is somehow inwardly noble in a way that the Philistians weren't, right? Uh, I was catching a little part of Sunday school and I heard some reference to David and all of the sins of David, right? Murdering Uriah, all those things. Uh, David was a wicked man. David did many evil things, right? What makes David different than the enemies of God is the mercy and the grace of God, that God would pour out his mercy on David. David is able to go into God's house because of the mercy of God. Now, we see the same thing if we circle back to Romans 1 and Romans 2, right? Uh, I think Romans 1, verse 18 through 32 is such a full description of just how bad humanity is. And it's always been interesting to me that how the Apostle Paul uses the third person plural as he's describing all of that, right? They, they, they do this, they do that. Um, you know, verse 32 says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And you read Romans 1 and you read all those passages and you keep hearing they this and they this and they that. And you kind of come away and you're like, yeah, shame on them. You know, shame on the world. It's so bad. It's such a bad place. But what happens when you get to Romans 2 verse 1? Right? What happens? It doesn't say, yeah, shame on them, right? It says, but you therefore have no excuse, right? The wicked person described in Romans 1 is not the world out there. The wicked person described in Romans 1 is the world out there, and it's us. It's you and it's me. We are the wicked ones. We deserve God's justice. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve his punishment because we are wicked. And yet, just like Psalm 5, Romans goes on to say, right, that why do we not get the justice and wrath of God? Because of the mercy and the grace of God. And again, we see that in Psalm 5. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. This is what makes David different. It's that God poured out his mercy on David. It's what makes you and I different, that God and his love and his infinite grace would choose you, choose you and me, that he would call us out of sin, out of darkness, and into light, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of his grace and his mercy. And notice, too, then, the, how in the psalm it sort of delves into, well, what does this look like? What does this mercy do? Uh, what do we get? Um, it, it talks about that, right? I will enter your house you lead me and make my way straight before me. You spread your protection over me. You bless us. You call us righteous. You cover us with favor as with a shield. These are amazing things, right? Uh, we can dwell with God. We as sinful creatures can dwell with the almighty, sovereign, perfectly righteous and holy God, right? We can dwell with him. We can enter into his presence, that's an amazing thing. We're protected by God. God is our protector. God watches over us. We can rely on him. Uh, those are amazing things. He blesses us. He declares us to be righteous. And he pours his favor out on us. So I just don't want you to miss the gospel here in Psalm 5. Don't miss the fact that because Christ, the Son of God, who entered into this world, who took on our flesh, who suffered as we suffered, but was without sin, he went to the cross. He who knew no sin took 
our sin, right? He died on the cross. He took the wrath of God from us, put it on himself. And he did all that because of his mercy and his love. And he obeyed God. He perfectly kept the law of God. He earned the favor of God. And through faith in him, we are righteous before God. We stand righteous before God because of what he's done. So the question is then, how does David respond in Psalm 5? How does he respond to this? He's talked about calling out to God in his trouble. He's talked about how wicked the evil men around him are. He's talked about the fact that he can come to God, not because he is not wicked, but because of the mercy of God. And what does that cause David to do? It causes him to turn and worship God. It makes, uh, you see that in verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Okay, this is how David responds. He responds with worship. Uh, later, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Okay? And think about the fact that this psalm is written in the time of David's trouble. Right? He's crying out to God in trouble. He's crying out to God as he suffers. And he walks us through this and he comes to the point of what is he doing? He's worshiping God. Right? And I think that's an amazing thing. It's a testimony to us. When you go through trouble, do you, does it make you think of the wickedness around you, the wickedness of yourself, the fact that God has been merciful to you? And does it turn your worry and your anxiety into worship, into worship for, to God for what he's done uh, for you? So, again, we've looked at Psalm 5. Uh, we talked about how Psalm 5 is a, in case of fire, break, glass psalm, right? When trouble comes, what does Psalm 5 tell us to do? And, and David has walked us through that. And I just encourage you this morning uh, that as you do experience trouble in your life, that you would be reminded that that trouble happens because of the wickedness in the world. And I want you to remind you that the wickedness in the world is not something that you are exempt from. You are also wicked. I am also wicked. But because of the great mercy of God that he's poured out on us, we can enter his house. We can uh, experience his blessing. We can know that ultimately all things will be made right and we will spend eternity with him. And for that, we can worship God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you, Lord, recognizing uh, how good a God you are. Lord, this life is not easy. Uh, this life can be difficult. There can be many uh, trials and, and sufferings that we go through, Lord. But we pray that you would help us to see that even in the midst of our trials, you are there. Lord, you are the one that sees us through. And when we think of the great mercy you have shown to us and the great uh, truth that that is and the great hope that we have of ultimately living one day in your presence forever, Lord, uh, that can get us through everything. And we pray all this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.